welcome to Pound the Rock, an NBA podcast by The Score. I'm your host, William Liu. I'm joined, as always, by fellow co-host, Jessica Sharo. What's going on? And Joe Wolfon. What up? We are here to eulogize the Toronto Raptors, but uh, before we do that, let's start off with the Cleveland Cavaliers and LeBron James. Uh, last episode, we were here talking about how the Cavaliers might be in trouble and they just won seven games with the Pacers and LeBron's talking about being tired. And then all of a sudden, the Cavaliers look like they're back to championship contention. They look like the prohibitive favorites to come out of the Eastern Conference once again, which shouldn't shock people. But I feel like every year the Cavaliers do their best to convince everybody that um, they're terrible and they're dysfunctional, only to get it right in time. Um and, you know, LeBron is in peak form. The Cavaliers supporting players are playing well. And, uh, Wolfon, I guess I'll start with you. Are the Cavaliers favorites to go back to the finals? Yeah, I think you'd have to say so. Um, at this point, I don't honestly know. Just given how easy the Raptors made that series on them, mm-hmm. I can't even say whether I feel like that is more impressive than what the Celtics are doing to the Sixers. So, the Sixers have have shot themselves in the foot a lot in that series too, I think. But um, the extent to which the Raptors just like did not have any kind of answer for the Cavaliers' offense, uh, the matchup problems that they were able to create, and um, the the way that their role players were able to get going, um, I think it's tough to say that they like they're going to be able to carry that kind of production over to the next round because they shot just ridiculously well on catch and shoots and, and and just got everything so so easy. Um, and part of that was them being really smart about uh, their rotations and about uh, the kind of actions that they ran, and they knew exactly how to pick apart that Raptors defense. I don't think it's going to be as easy for them to do that to the Celtics defense, but I think if you have LeBron and Kevin Love in peak form at the same time, uh, that's, it's always just going to be really hard to defend that team. And I don't know that the Celtics have enough offensive firepower to keep up um, as much as I think their defense is going to make it tougher. Yeah, I mean, did you watch uh, LeBron James in that series? <laughs> you, <laughs> He's pretty good. He's pretty good. Uh, no one in the East is beating that team four <sighs> times in seven games. And it's, I mean, look, Kevin Love kind of rediscovering his form is huge for them, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, taking advantage of mismatches on smaller guys, operating out of the elbows a little bit, like we've mm-hmm. all been asking, you know, the Cavs to let him do for the last four years. That's obviously a big part of it. And, you know, you can make the argument that, especially if Boston comes out of that series, which it looks like they will, you can make the argument that Kevin Love is better than anyone on that Celtics team right now. Horford obviously would have something to say about that, but right. Kevin Love, the way he's playing right now, you know, at his best is that kind of player. And then you have LeBron at the top end of it. And it's just, I just don't see either of Boston or Philly being able to beat LeBron the way he's playing right now. And it's yeah. just the same old story again every year. Like we can, someone convinces us like they've, eight got, straight they've trips, got, man. like this is the yeah. team that can do it. And then LeBron just comes out and completely reminds us why no, no team can do this. Yeah. I mean, it's almost, it's almost, it makes everyone look like a fool because uh, we watch the regular season. We see how badly the Cavaliers play defense. We see how much turmoil they go through. And then even in the first round this year, they look terrible. Like all the supporting players were were awful. Like the, the second leading scorer for the Cavaliers in the Pacers series was Kevin Love. And he scored 11 points a game on 35% shooting. You know, all these guys came back. I mean, you, you look at the supporting cast, right? There's no Kyrie Irving. But Kevin Love averaged 20 and 11 in the second round against the Raptors. Kyle Korver averaged 14 points a game, shot 56% from deep. 
JR, 12 points a game, shot 77% from three. That is not a typo. Uh, even George Hill, you know, came back from the dead a little bit, uh, shot 53%, was healthy finally after he missed three games in the Pacers series. Um, and, you know, the Cavaliers look like they're rolling. They're going to have more time to rest now for LeBron to sort of recoup. Um, I would argue that given how easily they got past the Raptors, LeBron was able to rest a lot in games as well in that series just because he could just be a passer and facilitate and the Raptors couldn't really stop the Cavaliers. Um, and, like, they just they just built a lot of chemistry. They built a lot of camaraderie. I think loss in all of this is also the fact that Tyron Lue has figured out his rotation a lot better. Um, he's not giving minutes to Larry Nance. He's reintroduced Tristan Thompson as a useful bench piece. Um, he has uh, cut... You know, Jordan Clarkson's minutes down to the very, like, just down to the minimum. And you still need someone to handle the ball a little bit so he can still play. But for the most part, Jordan Clarkson is not a contributor. Rodney Hood is out of the rotation. And he's taken all the guys that are actually useful to him, and he's made it work. Um, and obviously, LeBron gets a lot of credit for that because it's easy to coach when you have LeBron sort of organizing so much of it for you. But I think Lou has done a great job of uh, with the rotations as well. And, you know, if they do face Boston in the next round, I know this is a different Boston team and they have a, a couple of different pieces here and there. But fundamentally, this is a Celtics team that has been just completely obliterated by LeBron in, in recent seasons. And, yeah, I mean, like, you know, do they have Jason Tatum this year? Um, they have a couple of other guys like Semi Ojale. But, like, oh, come on, man. I mean, I don't know how much of that is going to matter against LeBron. And I think we're also really quick to forget that like the Cavaliers were up seventy to twenty nine, uh, in TD Garden in last year's playoffs against the Celtics, and so, you know, at least personally, I think a lot of the Cavaliers, um, have confidence against the Celtics just like they have confidence in the Raptors. And even though the Celtics are a better defensive squad, there's still a lot of bad matchups. Like even Tristan Thompson is Horford, an actual. Horford's big... been really bad in that matchup yeah. over the years. So I, I just I don't think the Cavs like I don't think LeBron. Uh, he probably doesn't sweat anybody, but he definitely I don't like just. Doesn't sweat that Celtics team the same way he doesn't sweat the Raptors. Probably, but I don't think he was sweating that Pacers team either. You know, like, I think, first of all, I do think the Cavs are going to be the favorites. And obviously, Boston's not there yet. We expect them to win. Like, Philly's got to win two games in Boston to win that series, which probably won't happen. But um, I, I just think it's important to keep things in perspective a little bit because this is the same Cavs team that looked like a complete mess and looked like it was on its way out of the playoffs in the first round like a week ago. Um, this is the same team that finished 29th in defensive rating in the regular season. And they have still been, you know, pretty dysfunctional for a large portion of this season, including the playoffs, which is something that we hadn't really seen from a LeBron James team in a really long time. So I don't know that this one series has cured everything that ailed them. I do think it's possible that they might backslide offensively and that some of those defensive problems might resurface in a way that they haven't in the first couple rounds. I think... There are definitely cracks here that are exploitable for a mm-hmm. team that isn't going to puke all over itself and isn't going to be like totally rattled in the face of playing LeBron James, which the Raptors were. Let's face it; like, yeah, yeah, no, they, 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 they had, mentally broke down. They had opportunities, and losing that game one destroyed them, um, and they just never recovered. And a, a lot of that had to do with what the Cavs did to them, and a lot of it had to do with what the Raptors did to themselves. But I, I, I don't want to say that they are just going to cruise to the finals now. I think. Uh, that Celtics matchup is going to be a little bit trickier for them. Mm-hmm. And I just think we can't completely ignore the context, right? Yes, every year we kind of have some questions and concerns about the Cavs and about their defense and about whether they're going to be able to turn it on in the playoffs. And every year 
they make those concerns look foolish, but it's never been like this before. It was never as bad as it was this season. Mm-hmm. They were never that bad defensively. Yep. They never struggled that badly in the first round. Kyrie was is gone this year. Right. Like I think there are things that are like quite a bit different about this Cavs team than um have been there in, in years past. So uh I don't you know that I don't think you can look past their opponent in the next round, whether that be Boston or Philly. Yeah, and I feel like we can all at least agree that the Celtics are probably going to put up a tougher fight than the Raptors would uh, in this series. I mean, I mentioned there were, like, mismatch issues, and there's always mismatch issues. LeBron is a walking mismatch, and he will – the Cavs are so good at playing mismatch basketball um, that, you know, it's always going to be exploited. But for the, for the most part, the Celtics have a lot of big wing defenders, and the more of them you can put out at one time, the more successful you'll be defensively against LeBron. Um and also, the Celtics are just, like, a tougher, grittier defensive team. Like, the Raptors just gave up so many, like, split-cut action where, you know, Corver would screen for love, and then all of a sudden the defenders would freak out, and then someone got an open layup, an open three. And you just don't see that happen to the Celtics as much. But I think the result is ultimately going to be the same because LeBron is LeBron. LeBron shot 52% from the mid-range, and they were all, like, incredibly tough shots. In Game 4, there was one shot where he was falling out of bounds behind the backboard with Pascal Siakam right in his grill, and LeBron drilled a rainbow three, or was, a rainbow jumper. That was probably, like, the 11th most difficult jumper he made. And this, I'm not even kidding. Like, yeah. it's just yeah, ridiculous. Game no, two, man. I, Game I two. agree with all that. I, I just think, like, what if you stack these two series side by side, mm. you know, the Pacers series and the Raptors series, I think what that proved is that ultimately LeBron, like, is going to be LeBron, but that he, he needs the rest of that team to step up. And they weren't there in the Pacers series. That's why they almost lost. He was just as brilliant in the Pacers series as he was against the Raptors. But he had so much more help in the second round. And again, I think the Raptors helped them out in that regard by just overhelping and getting scrambled and leaving shooters wide open in the corner time after time after time. Mm. But um, those guys made shots and they weren't making shots in the first round. And that's going to be really important. He can't do it himself. And Kevin Love's got to be there, you know. Yeah. Kyle Korver's got to be there. Like he, he needs he needs the rest of the team to help him out because Kyrie is not there. Because there isn't like another you know secondary playmaker who can make something out of nothing and take a little bit of the scoring load off of him. So yeah, and you know like the Cavaliers' defense, a lot of it in the playoffs is just a, they like to trap one specific ball handler uh, and then sort of force the rest of the team to play four and three. But with the Celtics, with the way they are, given their injuries, they can't play through one guy so they, they play through everybody everybody's a little bit of a threat so it's a little bit harder to guard that but Horford's also a way better four on three guy than anybody on the Raptors so that's true yeah, he's one of the best like in terms of like a big man helping kind of uh get his team out of like a trap situation there's yeah. not many big men you'd want mm-hmm. operating that four on three than Al Horford yeah but then again he also struggles with Tristan Thompson so we'll, we'll see what happens in the second when the in the uh He's the return of Tristan Thompson. Man, out of the dead. He saves them in Game 7 against the Pacers. He has a great Game 1 against the Raptors. Kind of fades a little bit. um, He's apparently going to coffees with Chloe again. Like, everything's good on that front again. Everything's coming up Tristan. God, the Cavaliers, man. Every every single year they have this little swoon, and then they're good in in May. Um, Okay, we talked a lot about this, um, but the Toronto Raptors. I mean, number one seed, 59 wins. Uh, first time in franchise history, uh, deepest team in the league, uh, changed the style of play, hit more threes, passed the ball more, you know, played a more um, creative style of defense. 
Got past the first round with a little bit of trouble, but, like, not that much, really. Like, they were clearly better than the Wizards, and they, they beat the Wizards. It's not an issue. And then they play the Cavaliers. And while it's completely understandable to lose to LeBron, especially when LeBron is playing like this, it's hard to not feel disappointed if you were a Raptors fan because, like, this season gave them a lot of highs, and then it ended on this incredible dud. And it's just happened so many times with the Raptors now. Three straight times they've lost to the Cavaliers um, by, I think, a combined margin of 180 points. Like, what do you do? What do you do for the Raptors, Cash? Go ahead. What do you do with the Raptors? What do you do if you're Masai Ujiri or Bobby Webster? I think you retool. I don't think you tear it down. I don't think you – like, I think Masai Ujiri has proven that he's not going to overreact to a playoff disappointment. He's not going to let the emotions of the moment get the best of him. And the emotions of the moment are just to assume, you know, we're not good enough. We got to blow this thing up. We're, you know, we've been embarrassed again. I don't think Masai will do that. He hasn't done it in the past. I don't see why this year would be different. But, you know, I don't really know what you do with this team because, you know, and everyone's saying blow it up. Well, the thing with blowing it up is you blow up a team to build a team that wins 55-plus games every year and is in the conversation every year. Yeah. So you'd literally be blowing it up in the hopes that you get back to this point. Um, landing a, a transcendent star like LeBron, not even a transcendent star, there's other transcendent stars, like landing that once-in-a-generation talent. Mm-hmm. There are once-in-a-generation talents for a reason. You know, blowing it up and going the draft route, you need just as much luck to land that player as you do just staying with the status quo and hoping for a bounce here or there, an injury here and there in the playoffs. You know, you need luck either way. Yeah. So I think that would be absolutely the worst way to go. Mm-hmm. I think what they need to do is they need to retool. They need to find, you know, they need to hope for internal development. Guys like yeah. OG Anunoby and Pascal Siakam, who should get a lot better and, you know, who look very promising. If they, those They already took a big step this season. Exactly. And that's part of the reason why the Raptors right. won the f- first seed. And, you know, OG, I think, is 20. Pascal literally only started playing competitive basketball like six years ago or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so these guys can take steps forward. The big question is what you do with the cons- the guys that have been there the whole time. That's mm-hmm. Lowry, DeRozan, Casey, and I guess Jonas Valanciunas, too. He's been part of that core yeah. group. You know, like the... The other guys, you can filter in role players. You can find guys that match. You can hope for internal development. But what do you do with those core guys that have been here through all of this? Do you run those same guys back? Mm-hmm. Or do you do you move on from one of them? Yeah, Wolfon, I think the question here is, like, have the Raptors reached their ceiling based on the core that's here? Because like, they've moved the, the supporting cast around a, cu- a couple of times, and the result is pretty similar. It's really tough to say because if – if you bring everybody back, you know, they re-sign Fred, they go into the tax to mm-hmm. keep everybody together, and they do get, you know, continued internal development, which is I probable, I would say, you know, given the track that some of those guys are on. Um, some of those guys are going to continue to decline, like Serge Ibaka, um, Kyle Lowry this year. Like, he had a really good season, even though his numbers fell off, but I think there are some concerning signs there for him, and just, like, the complete lack of explosiveness and his inability to beat anybody off the dribble. Yeah. Uh, he, he really did not get to the rim at all this year. Mm-hmm. He was really reliant on those pull-up threes. And it's going to be tough for him, I think, like as, as he continues to age. So I, I think they can continue to get better. Like, Can they get better enough to get out of the East with this group? That I'm not sure about. But I think the bigger thing, like if there's an argument in favor of blowing it up, not blowing it up, but just like trading one of their stars or 
two of their stars or changing the coaching staff. I just think like at this point, there's got to be some pretty devastating mental stuff going on. You know what I mean? Like yeah. how, how do you come back to training camp next year and get fired up about a season after the season you just had ended mm-hmm. the way it did? You know? when, you, when you were saying the whole time, like Helen DeMar full out said just a month ago that this whole thing was a waste if they didn't right. get it done in the playoffs. And all season, mm-hmm. it's like they've you know expressed confidence as they should have given the way that they were playing, but they also qualified it by saying, we know we haven't done anything yet. We know we're going to be judged on what we do in the playoffs. We know we're going to be judged by what we do against the Cavaliers. And against the Cavaliers, they crapped the bed like... That's how they're going to be judged, and I guess that's how they should be judged. They had a fantastic regular season, and they deserve a lot of credit for that and for getting to the point that they've gotten to considering where they started five years ago. Mm -hmm. It's really amazing. But, again, it's like you come back with the same group next year, and what are you telling yourselves? Every year it's like they've managed to tell themselves something different, right? Like I know – the culture change. Yeah, the, 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 and they the culture did change successfully board. change some parts of the culture. Like they changed For sure. the way they play. Um, they like Dwayne Casey's approach towards playing young players is is completely night and day if you compare it to what he was previously. Sure, there's no doubt they could come back next year and convince themselves that they're going to win 60 games and finish with the number one seed in the East. You know, like they can convince themselves that they can keep getting better, but can they talk themselves into? being a team that actually makes the finals can they talk themselves into getting over that mental hurdle mm-hmm. with the Cavs like and can you I sell that know. to the fan base right that that's a little bit tough because I think I think the fan I think the Raptors fan base um first off the Raptors had like the second most expensive playoff tickets in the entire league so like business is clearly good um you know but at the same time like I think after seeing this a couple of times and like you know um selling the dream that like this year it's different or whatever uh, it's just hard for fans to turn on the TV, look at Kyle and Demar in the playoffs, and just and and Dwayne Casey as well, and just say like, you know what, they're gonna do it differently this time. It's it's gonna it's just gonna be tough. And here's the thing, like, I have I have a question in terms of just is this an issue for the Raptors? Like, do they just struggle in, in the playoffs in general? Like, does their game just not translate to the playoffs, or do they have a bigger problem, which is just LeBron? They just can't beat LeBron because it seems like. For the most part, they've beaten everyone else they should have beaten. They beat Milwaukee, they beat Indiana, they beat Miami in 2016, and then this year they beat Washington, right? Those are the teams you expected them to beat. This year, the Cavaliers are weaker, but obviously based on how they played, not weaker at all, really. But, like, each time they were the underdog, and they lost shamefully, but for the most part, they've lost the games that they should have lost. Like, is that necessarily a reason to blow it up just because you can't beat LeBron? Uh, Look, they won... The last three seasons, only the Cavs and Warriors have won more playoff series than the Raptors. Yeah, um, that's true. They It hasn't always been aesthetically pleasing. You know, you go back to the year they made the East Final and they barely scraped by Indiana, Miami, who weren't very good. Mm-hmm. But they got it done. And yeah. then last year against Milwaukee, they blow that huge lead in Game 6, but they still get it done. Right. Even this year against Washington, I think, you know, what we saw in the regular season did translate, for the most part, to that first round. They had the one bad game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was game four when they completely fell apart down the stretch. Yeah. DeMar shot to, 30 times. Yeah, yeah. Reverted to old habits. But I think for the most part, you saw the the byproduct of that culture we said in the first round, especially down the stretch of game mm-hmm. six when they eliminated the Wizards. Yeah. Um, so again, it hasn't always been aesthetically pleasing, but they've been, if you're just looking at results, they've been a good playoff team, as good as any non-Warriors or Cavs playoff team the last few years. It's a LeBron problem, but I think that also speaks to like the mental. And I hate 
I usually hate the kind of analysis where mm-hmm. you're looking at like a team being mentally soft where you're trying to get yeah, in there. We don't know, exactly. We don't know what's going on in their heads. We don't know how they actually feel, whatever. But it was hard to watch that series and not feel like that team is yeah. mentally shook by LeBron, by the like the mere image of LeBron James in their presence. And the only time you didn't see it was the first quarter of game one when they came out guns blazing. And I think mm-hmm. they were up 33, 19 and it was like, all right, I guess this is what it is. The Cavs are the tired, crappier team and the Raptors are taking advantage. Yeah. And as that game, Stayed close, stayed close, and LeBron kind of crept up on them, crept up on them. You saw how shook they were as that game went on. And when they lost that game they were at the end of overtime. And the fact that everyone knew that it was almost like over and that they were devastated just tells you. Yeah. Like, Will, you mentioned like the fan base thing and how hard it would be for the fans to see the same guys back in the playoffs yeah. next year, especially if they match up with LeBron. This team went down one nothing. Yeah. You know, and everyone kind of knew it was over. Like, that tells you something. And also, like, I keep going back to it. The way this team came out in the second half of Game 2, mm-hmm. they were up to yep. basically playing for their season because they know they can't go back to Cleveland down 2 nothing, And they came out of halftime as if they were like already down 22. It doesn't make any sense unless you just accept the fact that there's some sort of mental block with this team. Yeah. And look, we've all been in the building when the Raptors have one of these meltdowns. Um and man, it, it's it's an awkward experience. It really is. People it's are pretty haunting, to be honest. Yeah. Like yeah, the, like the, the the rapidity with which the it's energy familiar, gets sucked right? out of that building and, and sucked out of the team <sighs> mm-hmm. is like it's devastating, man. Because it happens so quickly and decisively. Yeah, and that's what I, I agree. Like I don't like armchair psychologizing either and talking about them being mentally weak. I don't necessarily think that's it. I just think they know that they have no margin for error. They know what this team has done to them in the past. And I think, I really think that like blowing that chance in game one broke their spirit a little bit because mm-hmm. they've seen what happens, right? It's not, and it's not just the Raptors. It's like the Warriors had a chance to put them away two years ago, yeah. up 3 1, and Draymond gets suspended. And like that was all the opening LeBron needed, you know? Like the, the rest was, it, like he took over that series and, and, and all he needed was them to slip up just a little bit. Like, I don't know, man. It's, uh, that, that's what I'm saying. It's it's like it's tough to to convince yourself that like the next year is going to be different and keep doing that year after year after year. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know what they should or could do. Like I think it's going to be tough to overhaul the roster. It's not like they can tank, right? Because their young guys are good enough that they're still going to be like yeah. There's no need to tank a middle of the, the road Raptors. lottery team. Yeah, so. the, the rebuild is right there. You could pivot to the rebuild. If you want, it's just if they wanted to immediately pivot to this rebuild, they probably should have done it last summer instead of signing Kyle and signing Serge to these massive contracts, right? Like you could probably still move Larry. Um, it won't be easy and it won't have too much trade value. And it's probably more worth it to the Raptors to keep him rather than trade him. Serge is just bad salary. You can't do anything with him right now until he plays better. Um and who knows, man? You might even look at moving DeMar. I mean, he's the most movable out of their, th- you know, three main guys. JV might get moved. Who knows with he- the head coach, Dwayne Casey, who's done a great job this year. Very well could win coach of the year um, and had a lot of merit and basis for that. But, I mean, at the same time, like, you got to change something. Like, you, there's a, point in, there's a point in game four right before the Raptors went into halftime where they were only – they were still in the game, only down, like, four points. 
And then Dwayne Casey subbed in Baby Nagara, who is just drinking coconut water like Joe Wolf on in the, in the podcast studio. And he's like, who, me? I'm going to come into the game? And then immediately in two minutes, the Raptors were blown out 10 nothing, <laughs> And the Raptors went into halftime down 16, and it never recovered. Like, you just can't make moves like that, especially when you have anybody else. Serge, Pascal, um, you can even play Jacoperto if you need to in that in yeah. that spot. Maybe just ride JV through foul trouble. Who knows, man? I mean, you, I think just, you just can't go with Bebe. That's kind of the most devastating thing about this playoff run for them because the whole season, it was like them trying to talk themselves into, you know, th- this new attitude, this new way of playing and how that was going to translate to the playoffs. And everyone was doubting whether it would mm-hmm. or at least just waiting to see whether it would, right? Yeah. And in a lot of ways, it did. Like, I think the ball movement was still there. You yeah. know, aside from that game four against Washington, they didn't really revert to their old habits, like their old stagnant offense. The offense remained really good. Mm-hmm. Um, they continued shooting threes and shooting them effectively and creating good shots. And yet, on, like, on an optical and aesthetic level, like, it looked better. The process yeah. looked better and more repeatable and more sustainable. But things like depth... And, you know, like tinkering with rotations and having the flexibility of things that worked in the regular season didn't really work. Like their bench wasn't good in the playoffs. Jakobertl yeah. disappeared in the playoffs. You know, like Fred he was Van- one of their best bench players. He was absolutely. Delon Wright was fantastic in the first round, like kind of disappeared in Completely the second round. Yeah, it was like four points a game. Like, yeah. So it's kind of yeah. like, the, you know, the things that people were, you know, doubting them for throughout the season and the things that they were, uh, you know, doubting were going to translate to the playoffs kind of didn't. Yeah. So... That's where I wonder, you know, when, when you talk about regular season versus playoffs, it's like, uh, I don't know, this was their big gambit, right? To see, like, if they could change the way they played and if that would give them better results in the playoffs, and they ended up in the same place. So you got to pivot to something else, I guess, or double down on the same thing and just hope you have a better outcome. Yeah. I don't really know. Yeah, no, there's going to be a lot of questions if you're Masai and Bobby Webster. Okay, moving on to the Western Conference, the... I mean, we don't want to knock it. We don't want to dismiss the Pelicans and the Jazz just yet. But, like... We can dismiss them. We, yeah, it's it's going to be Warriors, Rockets in the West. I think this is the least surprising um, sequence possible. I mean, I guess LeBron in the in, in the East Finals is not that surprising. But, I mean, at the same time, they had a you know, strange season and stuff. Warriors and Rockets um, were always destined to play in the Western Conference Finals. And, you know, first off... I'm very happy for Chris Paul. Like, just finally he can shed that label of never going to a conference finals. Um, you know, it's 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 really limited his legacy because he's clearly a way better player um, than what that one dubious title limits him to. And I just hope it's not a Steve Nash situation with him. But um, the Rockets are playing phenomenal. Uh, and, and the Warriors are also playing phenomenal. And, like, you know... I would give the edge to the Warriors just because they have such a talented team and everything like that. But the Rockets are about as legitimate as you can get. I mean, they've translated all the regular season success over to the playoffs. Um, And, you know, it's going to be an epic series. I mean, Cash, who would you give the edge to um, just from the series, like, you know, before the series starts? And, 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 you know, I'll ask you guys both about who you guys um, think will swing the series. I still think you have to give the edge to the Warriors just because, um, you know, and I don't think that's unfair to the Rockets. I just think, I think we're all pretty much in agreement that the Warriors the last couple of years, once KD went there, it's the most top-tier talent one team has ever assembled, at least in our lifetimes. Um, so I just think anytime you have that kind of talent advantage, every single time you step on the court, you you have the edge. Um, 
Having said that, like we've said, that, you know, and I've kind of gone on rants about this earlier in our first couple episodes about how I think this Rockets team is kind of the perfectly blended team for the modern era with their playmaking, their shooting, their switchable forwards defensively, um, the way Capella can kind of move around. I think they're the. I think if a team can do it, it's this team, mm-hmm. uh, and they've got home court advantage. Uh, they've got a lot of different options. They've got different kind of guys that they can throw at KD and switch on the perimeter onto Curry. So I think the Rockets will give them a fight, and I think I think it'll be an entertaining as hell series. Yeah. But I still think, again, that it's just I can't picture a team beating the post-KD era Warriors. Especially now that they're all healthy. Exactly. Yeah. Four out of seven. I just cannot see it. Yeah, I mean, the swing factor to me is Steph's health. Yeah. Because... The last time the Warriors lost in the playoffs, he was also coming off an MCL sprain, and it really, I think, sapped him of his explosiveness. Yeah, and the, the Rockets are going to go get DeMontis Yunus back. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you just got to sweat a little bit on the floor, and it's Save game over. Save him um, But, like, you know, the, we, we all know, like, the Rockets switch everything on defense. It's been really effective in the playoffs. I think that's what gives me hope that they can actually maybe go toe-to-toe with the Warriors, maybe pull off the upset, mm-hmm. because... Their defense has been really effective. Steph is as devastating as anybody at punishing switches when he's 100% healthy. If he's at like 70 or 80%, and it's kind of like a redux of the 2016 finals where he can't go around Tristan Thompson, he can't go around Kevin Love, mm-hmm. what's he going to be able to do against Clint Capella? You know, what's he going to be able to do against Luke Mbamute or PJ Tucker when those guys get switched onto him? Like, he's got to be able to take advantage of those switches because that's sort of what makes the Warriors offense go Mm -hmm. and I mean I think Durant's been good enough to make you feel like even if even if Steph isn't that guy like Durant can be relied upon to just get you buckets and hit an absurd you know uh, rate of mid-range shots no matter who's contesting them right you know throw him hit them over Anthony Davis like no one's gonna contest this guy's got like a nine and a half foot reach and he's shooting over him like he's not even there it was that, that was completely insane. So, yeah. um, again, like, I, I don't know how much the Rockets defense can really do against something like that. And, like, um, now that both those guys are back and healthy, like, the ability to just run Curry, Durant, pick and rolls is the most devastating off- offensive weapon that you can have. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious to see how the Rockets would deal with that. But um, I, I would also give the edge to the Warriors. But, again, I think – uh, the health of Curry's knee and, and just like how well he's able to move around is going to be a big factor. Yeah, I think um, also a big factor is still like I still don't know if the Warriors can necessarily defend the Rockets in the same way. And I say this as like in full knowledge that like the Warriors have just completely dominated the, the, the Rockets over the years. They've dismantled them. James Harden has had a couple of performances where he's completely unraveled. But um you know, James Harden is a different player this season. He he has been. He's going to win MVP. Um, you know, and the way he's playing isolation basketball. I mean, we talked earlier about LeBron punishing mismatch basketball. James Harden has just exploited mismatch basketball all season. He's been so good in these isolation possessions. Um, I haven't checked the numbers recently, but through like a, a round and a half, he was averaging like 10 isolation possessions per game scoring 1.22 points per possession off those isolations. Like, there's nothing you can do. Like, you can't scheme a defense against that. They're going to screen. They're going to get a weaker defender like Curry, maybe even whichever. You can't even play a center, really, against the Rockets. Um, 
and and they're gonna he's just gonna go to work and he's gonna cook some of those guys and and you know I don't know if the Rockets can find enough secondary scoring around James Harden, uh, whereas the Warriors always find secondary scoring just with how fast they play and, and sort of their system generated offense like they're able to generate organic points whereas the the Rockets have to just play pick and roll all the time, but I mean at the same time like I don't know James Harden is gonna be the short of LeBron and maybe Kyrie like James Harden is going to be the most devastating offensive player that this Warriors team has ever faced um and it's it's going to be a tough series um one question I did have is the Warriors started their death lineup uh which is Draymond at the five KD at the four Iguodala at three Clay and then Steph I think it's called the Hampton Five lineup now. It's, yeah, it's not the Hampton <laughs> Slightly five. less intimidating than yeah. the death lineup, but... Yeah, shout out to Tim Kawakami for, for coming up with that nickname. The Warriors are really embracing it. Hampton's Five sounds like uh, like a just an awful... Oh, like, a, like a mediocre hotel. I was going to say, it sounds like a 90s era, like... Like rom com type of like sitcom or something, like... Yeah, or like an adult contemporary band. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maroon Five. <laughs> um, but, I mean, seriously, man... Um, they're, they've started them against the Pelicans. They were dominant, um, you know, and Steve Kerr said they'll keep starting it, uh, in games five. And you would assume that that's, they're doing so with an eye towards the Rockets series. And, and how do you, how viable do you think that lineup will be, um, defensively against what the Rockets like to do? And, and do you think the Rockets will downsize and match by taking Capella out the floor? Uh, I don't think so. I think like capella has been awesome and yeah. that he... also pretty resistant to like matching up yeah he is and i think he should be like he should roll with what's worked for houston all season and capella is like i don't know he hasn't looked to me like a guy who can get played off the floor by a smaller lineup like he's pretty quick he's athletic um and he is by far their best rim protector and they're really going to need that so i don't know that pulling him off the floor is really going to be the answer for them um because I mean, I think they they will definitely at times go to like the smaller Mbamute at center or PJ Tucker at center looks because they don't really have a great option at backup center. You know, like I don't expect Nene to get a lot of run in this series. So yeah, when Capella PJ Tucker, yeah. yeah. So when Capella's off the floor, I think they will downsize. But I don't think they're gonna. You know, he, he's not gonna get played down to like twenty twenty five minutes in this series. Like he's gonna be a big part of what the Rockets do, and again, like that, that's a huge huge part of their offense. Mm-hmm. Having him, you know, as a dive man. Um, playing you know playing alongside James Harden in those in those uh, pick and rolls when basically they're forcing the defense to decide you know Harden gets a guy on his hip and you have to defend against a lob and then you also have to defend against Harden's drive to the basket and that's what makes it so so difficult to guard so um, I think they'll roll with that and I don't know that that is going to be tough for the Warriors to guard because I don't think they're going to want to play any of their traditional big guys big minutes so it's going to be contingent upon, you know, guys like Draymond and, and Durant to sort of contain Capella. And that could be tough. Yeah, that and that's why I was actually going to go with Capella as my swing guy in this series. Because, mm-hmm. you know, Will, you mentioned D'Antoni's not a guy that necessarily looks at the other lineup and, and thinks, oh, like, now I got to match up. D'Antoni's always yeah. been the guy that tries to force you mm-hmm. to match up with his team. And I think if Capella has a great series and Capella um, succeeds as a rim protector who can also switch onto the perimeter, which we've seen him do before, even against the Warriors, yeah. he was good against them this year, you know, while the Rockets went 2-1 and one against them. If Capella can do that and it forces Golden State to maybe play one of their more traditional bigs who's just not as valuable to their team as all these other guys, you know, that can be a huge swing factor in this series. 
Um, you know, between Capella's screening, his rim running, again, mm-hmm. his ability to switch onto the perimeter defensively. Offensive like, rebounding. Uh, yeah, like he can make a huge difference in this series. And if, you know, Kerr and the Warriors do want to start with the Hamptons 5 death lineup, Clint Capella could feast on Draymond. I, listen, I respect Draymond's defense as much as anyone else, but Clint Capella's a big dude, and he plays like a big dude inside. And, you know, at some point, Draymond's just not strong enough to guard a guy that size doing the things he can do. And I don't know if, like, I don't know if Draymond can take Capella out of what he does. Well, I think one thing, Capella's not going to post you up, right? Like, that's not really no. his No, he's game. not going to so, back you down. So I think, like, maybe the offensive rebounding could be an issue, but I don't think you worry about, you know, Draymond getting burned in the post the way mm-hmm. that he might against a guy like Anthony Davis or Carl Towns, right? Like, somebody who is taller than him and also um, is going to be able to, like, shoot over him or, you know, like, operate with some post moves that can actually make life, life difficult. I think... With Capella offensively, you really just worry about like the offensive rebounds and and the dives to the basket. Like that's that's yeah, all he's you a really... devastating rim runner. He is, and like that's but but like I think focusing on containing that is is a little bit easier than having to worry about both um like b- both him as a role man and him as like a post up threat. If that were the case, so I think that might make things a little bit easier. Yeah, and the the thing we always kind of underrate with the Warriors is like. Th- KD is so big that, like, when they go small, quote-unquote, they still have a seven-footer out there, basically. And he's, like, incredibly mobile and, like, a great... great And a great help. Shot blocker, yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. The the Warriors are the Warriors for a reason. I I think we all still have the Warriors as favorites, but it it should be a a very compelling series, and it's going to be a series that's going to be worthwhile um, of being the finals. But, uh, you know... That's is that, is, that how it pitch for, is that your pitch for reseeding or like just no, going no, one no. through sixteen? Will no, I don't want to see reseeding, man. I don't <laughs> want to see reseeding. There's no point. There's no point. Let, let the upset like if you upset someone, carry that advantage through. Anyway, we're gonna take a quick break right here, uh, and we're gonna come back on the other side with make or miss. Welcome back to Pound the Rock. We are going to move into our Make or Miss League segment. But before we do that, uh, a kind reminder to please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, on SoundCloud, Stitcher, you know, wherever you get the podcast. But uh, please show support uh, for the show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. It helps us a lot. Uh, The little iTunes algorithms uh, really do dictate a lot of the success of the show so um if you if you like it again please rate review and subscribe so make or miss league um pretty straightforward if you agree with the statement it's a make if you disagree it's a miss uh shout out to Dwayne casey uh hopefully Dwayne casey is still in the league after this season but uh you know it's it's a make or miss league so first one the boston celtics talent is being underrated in all of this brad stevens love make or miss you know what i'm gonna go with a make on that Um, And I'm going to say that I'm guilty of it, uh, underrating that talent. I think, you know, they definitely do deserve credit for getting the most out of each individual part and kind of coming together and and being better as some of their parts as they are as individual talent. But I do think a lot of this talent is underrated. Like Al Horford is a perfect example of a guy that's been overrated basically his whole career. Mm -hmm. Like this guy's value to winning is underrated, right? Yeah, underrated. Yeah, 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 yeah. immeasurable. Yeah. Um, The things he does. And then, you know, part of the problem is you get... You know, you watch like things like inside the NBA after a game. And yeah. You got guys like Shaq and Chuck telling like casual fans like, 
oh, if, if Al Horford doesn't get you 30 and 15, you're not winning this game. Or, like, you know, they need... No, yo, they literally said, if I was playing in the NBA today, I could give you Al Horford numbers. Yeah, like, they, they say things like that, and it's not just them, right? A lot of people are guilty of it, so they, they underrate guys like Al Horford. And then, you know, even, like, Jason Tatum had a great year for a rookie, but forget great year for a rookie. Like, Jason Tatum was just a very good NBA player right now. Yeah. Already. Jalen Brown. Yeah. Good NBA player already. Even Terry Rozier, who I was never high on. His play down yeah. the stretch of the season, especially after Kyrie got hurt in that first round against the Wizards, like that was practically star-level production. Yeah. So as much credit as Brad Stevens deserves, and look, he's a phenomenal coach. We know mm-hmm. you know how creative some of his sets are and defensively, just a um, wizard. Yeah. Um, he deserves a lot of credit too, but I think at some point, you know, over the last couple of years, you just have to watch the Celtics team and say like, all right, they actually, these guys are good. And if you put enough good players together, mm-hmm. um, and if Al Horford's your best player while you have all these other good players around him, then yeah, you can win 50-plus yeah. games and beat a mismatched team like the Bucs who are not well-coached and don't have as much all-around talent. Mm-hmm. And these are number three picks. Yeah, exactly, right? These aren't like second-rounders who it's like, oh, maybe these guys will pan yeah. out. They're just young. They're kind of ahead of the curve. That's what it is. Yeah, it's not a bunch of Abdul Naders. Um, Joey, make or miss? Um, I'll go with the miss. Uh, to play devil's advocate a bit. I think the team is good. Like, there is a lot of talent there. But I just think, if you think about the kind of teams that typically make the conference finals, Mm -hmm. there is almost always more high-end talent there. And I'm not saying that to disparage Al Horford, who I think is a fantastic player. But teams that are built the way the Celtics are usually have a pretty kind of clearly defined ceiling. And what they've managed to do to the Sixers, not just beating them, but like really like beating up on them pretty good, uh, I think has expanded my understanding of what a team like that is capable of. And I do think that's a credit to the players on the roster, but I, I don't know how many other coaches in the league could have coaxed that kind of performance out of them uh, than Brad Stevens has. Right. And I, I think they are extremely well balanced and they're a fantastic defensive team. But um, just looking at the roster and, and, and looking at the kind of talent that they've basically been leaning on, it's just a very unconventional formula and not one that you ever really see. And it doesn't mean that they're not talented. I just think that they're playing over their heads a little bit right now. And I mean, it's a credit to everybody in, yeah. in the organization. So, Yeah, I mean, look, this, this question kind of divides it. But I mean, really, everyone in the Celtics organization should deserve a lot of credit for what's gone on. Um, and uh, it's such a shame to not have Kyrie healthy. Because if we had Kyrie Irving going against the Cleveland Cavaliers um, in the Eastern Conference Finals, I mean, that would that would be must-watch basketball. I think it's going to be great basketball regardless, but um, it's just Kyrie's absence is going to loom large. You would definitely like to see Kyrie go out LeBron. Next one, make or miss. Um, Cavaliers adding Rodney Hood at the trade deadline was a mistake. Rodney Hood, uh, if you didn't know, reportedly uh, refused to enter Game 4 after basically being cut from the rotation? Uh, I think that was a mistake. Um, I don't know if acquiring Rodney Hood was a mistake. I'll call that a miss, just because I I don't think they could have foreseen him being this bad. And all they gave up to get him was Jay Crowder, who really wasn't giving them anything anyway. So I definitely think it was a worthwhile gambit, and uh, you would hope that he would have given them more. and the fact that he hasn't is pretty disappointing. But uh, I think a lot of us were really high on that trade when it happened. So I don't know if it's fair to judge it in retrospect and say that it was a mistake. Uh, I, I still think that he's a talented player. I, I believe in him. But uh, it's been really kind of vexing what's happened to him in Cleveland. Like he's totally disappeared at both ends of the floor. 
And I think part of that is just he's a guy who needs the ball in his hands a little bit. Um, he's, he's never been a particularly good off-ball player. And maybe they should have recognized that before deciding to trade for him because uh, he's, he's just been pretty invisible. So, Yeah, I think the thing with Rodney Hood, too, is I'm pretty sure he's not a this year. Um, he is, yeah. Like, this guy set money on fire in his uh, <laughs> down the street. Look, yeah, he let's, let's be straight. Like, he was terrible. Uh, after the move to Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And even going, like, he was good for Utah the last couple of years. Sure. But, like, we were talking about the Raptors having this mental block. I don't know if you guys remember Rodney Hood in the playoffs last year. Mm. Utah progressed past the Clippers in the first round. Rodney Hood was terrible in that playoff run for Utah last year. Yep. And even this year, again, it and it's, like, kind of looks shook. Doesn't yep. look like he wants to shoot it when he gets the ball. Doesn't look like he knows what he wants to do or has to do when he gets the ball in a non-shooting situation. Complete negative on defense. So in 21 career playoff games now for Rodney Hood, yeah. he's averaging 6.9 points mm. on 37-23-65 shooting. Like just completely going into the tank Yeah, when the playoffs start. Um, you add that to the fact that he was just bad down the stretch of the regular season this year too. And like I don't – and then you add now some of these kind of like – I don't know if you want to call them behavioral concern, but whatever these are, like not it's, checking. It's not out. the first time that exactly. this, something like this has happened. You know, doesn't have the best reputation as a great teammate. Like, who is stepping up to pay this guy or to yeah. back up a Brinks truck for this guy? Nobody. Yeah, and and here's the thing: Rodney Hood is undeniably talented, but like in terms of just his physicality, doesn't translate to the playoffs, um, and that really hurts you as a shooter. Like, in order to be a successful like shooter in the playoffs. You have to be the guy like like Kyle Korver, and obviously that's not fair. Kyle Korver is like a decade older than this man, and he has way more experience. But like someone who's able to play physically, um, you know, cut hard, and, and just like you know, w- when you go up for a shot, like to not fade, to not be affected, like because the playoffs are a different level of intensity, and a lot of players, um, you know, wilt under this pressure. It's not necessarily a mental thing; it's just phys- like physical. Like they're just they can't find enough room physically to like separate off a screen and just get an open shot and and hood's one of those guys i mean he kind of reminds me of terrence ross really like terrence ross for the raptors like this is a depressing episode for raptors fans but like you know terrence ross for the raptors was just like you know this this very talented player he could shoot all these shots whatever but every time come time for the playoffs he would be meant he'd be like physically too weak to actually play and just play his game and that's kind of what uh what what hood is reminding me of right now and, and I think, you know at least terrence didn't refuse to go into a game yeah you know? I, honestly like I, I think just also playing with lebron isn't for everyone and sure. we saw that with with crowder before he got traded and kind of what he said on his way out the door we saw that with isaiah mm-hmm. um i think it can be really tough we saw that even with kevin love in his first couple seasons in cleveland like it, it it can be really tough you don't see the ball as much you know you're really asked to play the supporting role and uh i think you know it can be really hard. LeBron's probably really tough on his teammates. And for a guy who is not used to dealing with anything like that, I think that could be a bit of a shock to the system. And I feel like maybe that's part of what Rodney is going through right now. Yeah. And you look at the rest of the Cavaliers, the guys that they brought in, George Hill has been solid. Um, and I think that one was, you can expect to be solid, but Jordan Clarkson has been poor. Larry Nance has been bad. You know, Hood isn't the only one, but it, it, the fact that he chose not to go into the game is just kind of crazy. Um, next one, make or miss. The Sixers should be disappointed if they lose in five games in the second round. Yeah, I think that's a definite make. I think, and I kind of said this before the playoffs started too, I think expectations for the Sixers changed just based on the way the bracket set up. I think coming into the year, anyone would have been thrilled just with them oh, yeah. in the playoffs, as yep. they should have been, you know, the process and all and all the pain they went through to get to this point. 
But once the playoffs start and you see the bracket and that team's coming off, I think it was a 16-game winning streak going into the playoffs, 16-7, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, and I don't care how young they are, but in terms of top-tier talent, like those guys yeah. are special players already. Um, you know, And they've got shooting on that roster, and they're a great defensive team, and like they're well-coached. And then you saw the the fact that you were going to avoid Cleveland and Toronto until the conference finals, mm-hmm. and they get matched up with the Miami team. Obviously, that wasn't very good. Yeah, Boston is banged up, banged up, battered. So I think, yeah, I think once the bracket came out and you saw the opportunity at hand for Philadelphia, I do think they should be disappointed with not getting to these finals. Yeah, I'll call it a make too. I think exactly what you said. Like at the start of the season you know, you would have been thrilled to get to the second round and win a second round game. But uh, expectations changed. And the way the bracket was set up for them, the way they finished the regular season, uh, and the way they played in the first round, I think there were a lot of realistic expectations that they were going to keep it rolling and at least make the conference finals, if not make the finals. So Mm. I think it's especially disappointing just given how they've played in the series. It's not just the fact that they are losing and might lose in five games. They look discombobulated. They've lost the kind of confidence they had in the first round. They totally have. And, like, they've been slow to adjust, I think, to what Boston's defense has done to them. Yeah. And Ben Simmons has looked pretty out of sorts. The man had one point. Yeah. He and he's just like he's lost the like aggressiveness that he had in the first round. You know they haven't been pushing it in transition the way that they were earlier, and obviously you know losing that just ridiculously hot shooting from Marco Bellinelli and Ersan Ilyasova hurt them. But um, I don't know, man. I, I think they they've just had a bit of a letdown as far as their level of play, and I think that's what should be really disappointing to them. Yeah, and like you could be disappointed in just this the this season and the the Sixers not capitalizing on the window while still being very encouraged that I think Ben Simmons, um, Joel Embiid, and Dario Saric are really going to take a lot of learning experiences. Markel Fultz, not going to take many learning experiences. He's just going to continue taking L's from Julius. Dr. J. Dr. J is slandering you. <laughs> no, like, what did Dr. J say? Dr. J said um, uh, there's he wished like the the Sixers had drafted Jason Tatum. It's oh, man. like yeah. yo, yeah, <laughs> that hurts. <laughs> Not great. Allen uh, Iverson comes out. I, I prefer Lonzo Ball. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I'll say is look, like I obviously we all believe the Sixers have a very promising future, but mm-hmm. you know this like you just can never be sure. And we talked about this like with the old Thunder and everyone. And I know that was different. Like they had already yeah, in the finals, sure. but still, like when they lost in the finals that year mm-hmm. to that Heat team, it was kind of like, well, this is the first of many for the Thunder. They're just scratching the surface, and like. We've got countless examples that this stuff is never guaranteed, whether it's injuries, you know, player discontent, whatever it is, this stuff's never guaranteed. So when you have an opportunity like the Sixers had this year, I don't care mm-hmm. how young you are, when you don't capitalize on that opportunity, that is, that's a waste, you know? Yeah. It's, the feature on the Sixers should be called Hold That Confetti. <laughs> Yo, I mean, also, like, man, if the Sixers had beaten the Celtics and gone on to the second round, uh, third round and gave LeBron a really competitive series, that would have opened the door for LeBron to be like, hey, man, I really liked what they're building here. I respect them a lot for what happened last season. I'm going to go join them, and, you know, we're going to get this championship, right? Now it's kind of like, eh, you know, I mean, the pieces are still there, but, you know, it's, the case is not as strong. So I, I think, you know, it's a bit of a missed opportunity. Um, next one, make or miss. The Knicks are finally moving the right direction with the David Fisdale hiring. Can I, I, I'm going to like defer on this one. I just have no idea because... <laughs> You're going to pass the ball instead of making or missing it. <laughs> I don't know, man. Like, Fisdale... All right, Rodney Hood over here. <laughs> for, yeah, look. I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm rattled right now, man. I just, 
I, I really just want to put it in anybody else's hands. Uh, oh. I don't Patrick Patterson behavior. I, I find uh, I find judging coaches to be extremely difficult. Um, you know, and like not being in a team's locker room and seeing how they interact and like being in a film session. Um, I, I just think it's really hard to judge the value of coaches and. Uh, Fisdale has like a pretty good reputation, obviously was extremely well-liked and well-respected within the Miami Heat organization. Mm-hmm. There were some kind of concerning things that came out about him in Memphis, and he True. clashed with Marcus Gasol, and it didn't seem like he fostered such a strong locker room culture there. Um, and like the latest report from Stefan Bondi of the New York Daily News was that he had kind of created schisms in that locker room by not really understanding where the players were coming from. He came in with like a mandate to instill his own culture from Miami and that didn't really jive with the players who were there. And it just seemed like uh, that situation could have been handled better on both sides. So I don't know, like the, the Knicks organization is, has been historically fractious mm-hmm. and dysfunctional. So, you know, is he going to be able to come in and put his stamp on that and kind of modernize and improve the organization? Or is it kind of going to be more of the same dysfunction where coaches are butting heads with players and nobody's on the same page. Uh, I think it's, like, impossible to say right now, and we probably won't know for a while. Yeah, look, like, I think there's been too many examples um, in my memory of the Knicks doing, like, one thing here or there, and I'm like, oh, okay, they're on the right track. Even, like, the Phil Jackson thing, while I thought it was a little strange because he didn't really have management experience since his, like, days with the ABA or whatever the hell it was, um, it was still like, okay, mm-hmm. James Dolan's recognizing, you know, he isn't a basketball man. And, he's and he did some, step back. James Dolan did, did step back. But then he kind of like stepped back in and started – like, I just have no faith that James Dolan can stay out of his own way, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that David uh, Fisdale alone could undo just, how, you know, whatever it is, 20 years worth of the culture that Dolan has built there. Yeah. That, you know, I'm sure extends into management. It probably extends into the corporate side. Like, it's everywhere. So, you know, short of LeBron actually loving Fisdale so much, which he he does, but short of LeBron being like, man, I'm just going to go play in New York now because Fisdale's there, which I don't think is going to happen. Exactly. Right. So short of something like that, I just don't see how this is really that much of a step. As much as I like Fisdale, mm-hmm. and I think great coaches can make a difference. At the end of the day, it's a coach. It's not, he's not making that much of an encore impact. Right. I mean, at least, at least the Knicks didn't just look at like two candidates like one like what Phil Jackson did when they hired um uh Hornacek. I mean they nearly hired uh Kurt Rambis yeah. to be the and head they coach. They interviewed Mike Woodson this time. Like what are you doing? <laughs> okay, yeah, that's true. I mean they did uh, reports did say that they interviewed like five to six different people. So that, that's good. At least they sort of expanded. They were the all pool. retreads though, I think. Mark Jackson was one. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. You know what the mix is still the mix, you're right. But at, <laughs> at least Fizdell's going to see Chris Stapps in Latvia. There that's you go. That's something. I think also the next like, co- a next coach has never been in Latvia. If there's a silver, if there's a silver lining there too, it's like obviously Fisdale coming in and trying to change up like grit and grind that was so deeply entrenched and part yeah. of the culture there was like gonna rub some people the wrong way. But like, what's he really coming in to, to like change about the Knicks that people are gonna be attached to? Triangle offense, know? baby. <laughs> yeah, Sasha Vujic is gonna be upset. <laughs> Actually, I think he's gone from the team finally. Um, um, n- next one, make or miss. The Pistons are in a worse position after Sam Van Gundy's four-year reign. So the Pistons fired Sam Van Gundy, who was president and head coach. He had complete control of the team. And they missed the playoffs in three of the four years. And the one year they made it, they were an eight seed, and they got swept. Um, I am going to call that a miss, but it's close. <laughs> uh, like, they're a better team now. They have two kind of stars um, or at least, you know, recognizable names. I mean, they had Drummond before, but um, he's developed into a pretty solid player. They have Blake Griffin. 
Um, they have some deep, decent complementary pieces around those guys. Uh, I think Luke Kennard could be like a solid role player. Stanley Johnson started to come into his own toward the end of last season. Mm-hmm. And with a full season uh, of those guys with like a healthy Reggie Jackson, I think they could be, you know, like a lower yeah. end playoff team. Sure. Which when he took over, they they didn't really have any kind of direction. And I don't know that you could say that that direction has gone swimmingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one that they ultimately chose, they have a really clogged cap sheet. and Really clogged. And like $111 million over the next three it's years, rough. guaranteed. It's rough. They have a clogged cap sheet and no real means of taking uh, a leap to get to another level. But yeah. at least, you know, the floor is higher than it was. And... Um, I don't know. As far as where they started when Stan took over, I still think they're in slightly better shape now than they were then. Yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with that as well. I'm gonna say it's a miss because I think they're in slightly better position, but I don't necessarily it's think very that's, slight. Yeah, like I don't think Van Gundy did a great job. I think uh-huh. it's another example of a great coach becoming a an executive and kind of getting in his own way as a coach. Mm-hmm. But what he did as an executive, I don't think he drafted well. No, ter- look, I terrible. terrible Obviously not a thing. It just he didn't. He did not draft well. Yeah. Um, and then he saddled the team with some bad contracts. And like Joe said, they've got whatever it is, $111 million committed to a non-playoff team, basically. But I do think if you go back and look at the roster before oh, Stan man. Van Gundy came, you know, like Chauncey Billups apparently was still playing in the NBA at the end of that season. Um, Will Bynum, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Luigi Dottome, like mm. you just go down this list, Josh Harrelson, Brandon Jennings, like Josh Smith, Rodney Stegg, like that team was terrible. Yeah. And they're not maybe a lot better now, but they, like Drummond is better and Reggie Jackson in a bounce back year could be pretty good. And even Blake Griffin, the contract is not great. But Blake Griffin's still in a, like an elite talent when he's yeah. healthy and on the ball. So like, like you said, I think I think he raised their floor, definitely. And I think he did raise their ceiling a little bit, just not to the championship level that people hoped when he took the job. Yeah, let's also remember that he turned Brandon Jennings and Ursan Ilyasova into Tobias Harris, which he then turned into Blake Griffin. I don't that wasn't is, a great yeah, that's nice. That wasn't a great trade to get Blake, but it's the definitely fact not that, great. There's the a lot that, of salary on that contract. For sure. And he's very, very injury prone. He is, but he's still a, a very like good player. Yeah. For um sure. and the fact that they got Blake and, and, you know, just a guy who can put asses in seats in a new arena that was struggling to draw, I think is beneficial. So the fact that he managed to get, get out of uh, Brandon Jennings and Ersan Ilyasova, uh, like borderline all-star is pretty impressive. True. Okay. Last one. Make or miss. Patrick Patterson slandering the Raptors in game four was a bad look. It was a terrible look. Okay. Like Patrick Patterson was a great glue guy for the Raptors for a uh-huh. long time. He was part of the, you know, the Rudy Gay trade and part of the beginning of this Raptors era. And, you know, he was, deserves praise for that. But the fact that this guy's got the audacity to yeah. do the whole Kermit sipping, like, none of my business thing last night. Like, this isn't, you know who would be able to do that? Like, a guy like Victor Oladipo. Yeah. Who the team yeah. traded him away and then he showed that he was way better than they thought. Mm-hmm. You know, he could have posted something like that. And when he the didn't Thunder, do it. Exactly. And he, he was very classy to not do that. Patrick Patterson, like, wh- I don't understand. What do you think, Pat, that the Raptors were missing a guy that was literally afraid to shoot a basketball in this? Like, you think you being in this lineup would have made a difference? Like, you were terrible. He had eight, in the eight points. Eight, yeah. eight total points. And man. he had a terrible year for the Thunder. He was legit one of the most disappointing players in the league this season. Everyone thought the Thunder got a steal. With that deal over the summer, I was one of them too because of all the intangibles. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, and kind of like non-box score player. things that Pat does. And he was terrible. Eight points he, again in the playoffs. He almost tripled mm-hmm. the amount of double-digit scoring games he had, which was eight, with scoreless games, which was 23 this season. Like, just he, a complete zero. But hey, but and was, that might be being nice to him, saying he was a zero <laughs> on a basketball court this year. So for that guy to mm-hmm. then sit there yeah. and tweet that as if he's saying, like, oh, like, like I showed you, like, what? Yeah, I yeah. don't even really get it. Like, what did he like? What did he show them exactly? Exactly. What, was he, what point was he trying to get across? Like, did he want the team to like reassign him? He skipped his his exit interview at the end of last season after getting after swept. being so unbelievably shook. Like, you, like a good look for Patrick Patterson is like when he has a wide open three in the like in the second <laughs> round against the Cavaliers and somehow manages to travel. Uh, without even putting up a shot. Mm. Um, a bad look for Patrick Patterson is slandering the Raptors after having the worst season of your career and yeah. um, providing nothing to the team that you went to that also lost in the first round. So Yeah, that has to be... The, the thing is, like, Pat has also said some very nice things about the Raptors like since leaving the organization. I think he was relatively well-liked by some of the players. Uh, but, man, uh, the fan base just completely turned on him, and, and admittedly so. Like, don't kick the – like, you know what? Everyone can kick the Raptors while they're down except for Patrick Patterson. Like, come on. Yeah. Uh, and if you just go into his mentions on that tweet, it is just a legendary thread of Raptors fans slandering um, this man. And, and, you know, for justified reason. Anyway, we're going to take another quick break, and we're going to come back and take one last kick at the Raptors. Welcome back to the final segment here, and as we always do on this podcast, we take a trip back in time to look at previous playoff moments, and this week's playoff flashback is uh, yet another Raptors collapse, I would say. Um, This was back in 2007. The Raptors had uh, won the Atlantic Division. Sam Mitchell was named head coach of the Coach of the Year. Um, Chris Bosh was coming into his own as a star player. Andrea Bargnani was the number one pick, and while Brandon Roy was way better than him, uh, he got one vote uh, for Rookie of the Year, um, you know, uh, Primo Pop. Is that from Chuck Swirsky? Uh, that doesn't matter. I mean, yeah, Chuck was the Raptors broadcaster, but still. I mean, still. I mean, Andrea was contributing to a playoff team uh, with, you know, nine points a game. And looked kind of promising in year one. Anyway, so the Raptors go to the playoffs um, as a number three seed. They face the New Jersey Nets, who just happened to have Vince Carter, um, who at the time was still totally hated by the Raptors fan base for the way he left the club. And, you know, the Raptors, I wouldn't necessarily say they were the overwhelming favorites. um, But, you know, it wasn't like the New Jersey team was actually that good. It was sort of towards the end of that New Jersey run. And the Raptors were down 3-2 in game six, but they had a one-point lead. Chris Bosh had a jumper in the last minute to give them a one-point lead. And then, of all people, they had their hearts ripped out of them by Richard Jefferson, who had a LeBron-like layup, driving to the rim, spinning, finishing over Chris Bosh to give them the lead, and then Richard Jefferson on the ensuing possession, stealing the ball uh, off Chris Bosh, or I guess off Jose Calderon, and sealing the win, and the Nets win the series in six games instead of the Raptors forcing seven. That would have been at home in Toronto. Cash, do you have memories of that moment? I, and how surprised are you in retrospect that 
Richard Jefferson of all people son the Raptors. Uh, like I mean, it was eleven years ago, so I think Richard Jefferson was at a different. He was, he was point. pretty solid yeah. at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, my memories of that moment are that I thought it was a bad pass from Jose Calderon. I think he left a little too much air under it, mm-hmm. um, or didn't get enough air un- under it. I guess. Um, the other memory from that series is Jason Kidd either averaging a triple double or nearly averaging a triple double in that series. I think he had multiple triple doubles in that series. Uh, Vincent have a great series, but yeah, that Nets team I think was better than you know it was very similar to then seven years later when the three seeded Raptors met the six seeded Nets, and again it was the same thing where the Raptors were just like out of nowhere division winner, but the Nets were like the more veteran yeah. team with a lot more playoff experience and probably a higher ceiling at the time. Um, yeah, but also just like looking back on it now, and it's kind of a reminder as to why now. <laughs> You should not be thinking blow it up because it's like you look back like that's the kind of team that you blow like they were oh, winning yeah, yeah. they won forty seven games and the next year won forty one and bowed out in the first round both years and like Bosch was their only elite talent like those are the kind mm-hmm. of teams where you look at them and say like what is this team doing like they need to go another direction so the direction was evidently trading for Jermaine O'Neal right so to- that's what I'm saying like if anything that just thinking back on this has made me feel better about the fact that. I don't think the Raptors are as far off as they they seemed last night. Yeah, I mean, and that was really the start of all this just crushing playoff disappointment that has lasted a decade plus now. Because mm-hmm. before that, uh, it had been, you know, the last time that the Raptors had been in the playoffs before this had been the Vince Carter era, which uh, they lost one series to the Knicks and they, they lost that series to the Sixers. But they didn't, like, they, they didn't have any kind of playoff that, collapses. That piston, game five... Winner take all. Right, Chris, Pistons. Chris, Chris Child had a bit of a mini collapse. <laughs> yeah, but that was like they they were like a forty win team that year, and the Pistons were like and without it, Vince. it was like a two seven series. You and know, without Vince, yeah. without Vince, yeah, I don't think anyone was expecting them to win that series, right? The the playoff disappointments really started with this series when they were the home team, like started the series at home, were the number three seed playing the number six, lost game one, lost both games on the road, um, and managed to like win that game five. Uh, because Boston Nakbar missed missed a, a shot at the buzzer, like a wide open three at the buzzer that would have won them the game in the series, and and then yeah, they they played like a really good game six in New Jersey, and I remember I was watching in my buddy's basement, and um they they just like that that bucket that Richard Jefferson got out of the timeout, there were like nine seconds left when they inbounded it, and yeah. I think he scored in like a second and a half. It was preposterously easy. He just makes one spin move. Chris Bosh is like ostensibly contesting the shot. He, thought he, he doesn't even jump. He gets like pushed under the basket, gives no contest, and it's just like a wide open layup. Yeah. Um, but then they still had a really good chance to win it. And like I saw, I remember like seeing that play develop and Bosch gets a great seal under the basket. Mm-hmm. Um, they emptied out that side of the floor mm-hmm. and all Jose had to do was just put that ball up a little bit higher and that's a game winning dunk. And who knows, man, the whole trajectory of the franchise could have been different. All these playoff demons that we've been talking about for so long. Could have been slayed right then and there. But then the Raptors were the Raptors. I also All right. remember James Gandolfini being courtside at that game. Anyone else remember James that? James Gandolfini? Wow. I don't remember that, but that's awesome. I think that was the year the uh, Sopranos ended too, so. Great yeah. call. Rest yeah. in peace. Um, well, the Raptors uh, are the Raptors, and the Cavaliers are likely on their way back to the finals. I mean, it's weird that... People will be surprised by this if you sort of recorded this, you know, before the season. You'd be like, of course, that's what happened. But, I mean, throughout the course of the year, the Raptors really did have people convinced. And the Cavaliers, I guess, had people convinced too. But, um, you know, the NBA is going to be what it is. It's going to be Celtics, 
Cavaliers, Warriors, Rockets. We could have told you this in November, and yet somehow it sounds surprising. I guess yeah. that's the great uh, ruse that the NBA takes you through is that they convince you that it's going to be different when it's going to be the same. Anyway, thank you to everyone for listening. Once again, please support the show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, um, Google Play, Stitcher, and we'll be back next week. Thank you.